Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week we're diving into the world of quantum physics and nuclear fusion. Pretty heady stuff, but pretty important when it comes to our ability to process complex information quickly, to produce an endless supply of clean energy, and to possibly help reverse the damaging effects of global warming. First, Nathan Potker from the National Science Foundation tells us about a breakthrough in quantum computing. Traditional computers consist of billions of transistors called bits. Quantum computing instead uses quantum bits, or qubits. Unlike ordinary transistors, which can either be zero, off, or one, on, qubits are governed by the laws of quantum mechanics and can be both at the same time. Quantum computing requires precise controls needed to manipulate information in these advanced systems. Supported in part by NSF, physicists at University of Rochester have developed a new method for controlling the electron spin in silicon quantum dots. These silicon dots make ideal qubits due to their capabilities and ability to scale for manufacturing. Using a voltage pulse, the researchers were able to harness the spin-valley coupling effect and manipulate the states to control the electron spin. Controlling data processing in silicon quantum dots is essential for their use and creates a new pathway for processing information in quantum computers. And while that sounds pretty impressive, you may be wondering... Why do we even need quantum computers? I mean, it's not like we don't have enough computers already, right? Dr. Susan Ramlow, who is a professor of physics and is currently teaching in the mechanical engineering department at the University of Akron, explains why quantum computers are so much better. Quantum computing is just kind of the next level. So, for instance, original computers were mechanical, right, and they didn't have digital or electronic circuits. We had to create integrated circuits and develop those things. And computers have become more complex and gone faster and faster. That's what we're always working towards. A quantum computer would be astronomically faster than even a big computer today, like like the kind of computers that they might have at Ohio State. So because of the special things that happen at the subatomic level in quantum physics, we could have a qubit that holds twice as much information. It could have a zero and a one simultaneously. And this is really what makes quantum computers so much faster. So the idea is that we just base computing on these very different physics principles so that we can do more complex calculations in a much shorter period of time. But quantum computers aren't the only thing sparking Dr. Ramlow's imagination these days. She's also very excited about the possibility of nuclear fusion providing us with a nearly unlimited supply of clean energy in the not-too-distant future, something that used to be only kind of a sci-fi pipe dream, but which recently was proven to be actually possible. Just a few months ago in December, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California announced they'd actually done it. And this, Dr. Ramlow tells us, was a big deal. A very, very big deal indeed, and very different than what we usually think of when we think of nuclear energy. Fission is what we're used to when we think of 
nuclear power, when we think of nuclear bombs, those are all fission. So fission means that we basically make atoms split apart. And when that happens, they give off energy for nuclear power, right? We use uranium, which is 92 in the periodic table and most often unstable, gives off radiation. And fusion is kind of like what it sounds. So instead of breaking things apart, we fuse them together. So we could use anything lighter than iron, 57, but usually we use helium, which is the case for the recent experiment. And so what happens is when we fuse particles together, we don't have the radiation that's given off. And depending on if it's iron 57 or less, right, then we give off energy. And if it's higher than iron 57, the system absorbs energy. We're interested in it giving off energy because this would be a great source for energy. When I first learned about fission, I was in sixth grade and the peak of the energy crisis in the 70s. And I did a report on fusion and it was going to be the wave of the future. And 50 years later, here we are. But what we have so far is pretty small. Fusion is also what happens in the sun. So people have studied fusion from afar for a long time, but making it happen even at a small scale in a laboratory, it's taken a long time to get there. So the sun, which powers all of, let's say, our solar power outlets and mm -hmm. allows us to live on the planet without freezing to death, that is powered by nuclear fusion as opposed to mm -hmm. nuclear fission, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So there's a possibility that we as puny human beings have now literally harnessed the energy of the sun, yes? Yeah, you could think of it that way, absolutely. Kind of reproducing the idea without making it so hot that we would melt. So that means that if we could have, let's say, a large-scale someday nuclear plant that was powered by fusion, we wouldn't have to worry about like Three Mile Island or anything like that. That's right. Yeah, it would be much safer and much more efficient. So it's more efficient because you get more energy out than you put in, which in some ways, right, that seems like kind of magic. Yeah, it's like say in physics class, we always teach students, you know, you put energy into a system and you get less work or energy out of it. But fusion is special in, in this respect. So that's why they started during the energy crisis of the 70s, really starting to delve into the idea of fusion because it seemed like such a good, clean way to get energy without burning of fossil fuels and all of the other types of energy that we use. Right. Let's say that we had a plant that was using nuclear fusion. The kind of byproduct that would come out of that, it wouldn't be radioactive? It wouldn't be dangerous? Right. There would be some byproduct, but it shouldn't be dangerous, right? It should just be particles. They've given off this energy and now they're kind of inert. So you would have to have a process where to make it feasible, you'd have to continuously zap this hydrogen fuel in order to continuously have energy given off, like the kind of thing that we'd have to have in a power plant. But there would be from the 
fuel, which is like a little acorn, it implodes, and right, and then that's done. So there's leftovers, but you know we don't have to find a place off in New Mexico to bury anyways. Wow. I mean, that would be pretty great because not only are people worried about nuclear plants potentially melting down and causing big problems with the water and radiation and things like that. I mean, nobody wants to have it in their backyard when it comes to disposing of the waste. It's like, well, we want it to go somewhere. We just don't want it to come here. And so far out in New Mexico under big mountains and stuff, they do that. But I know people out there don't even like it. They don't really trust it, but it's kind of a done deal for them. But this is great. So the question is, how far are we from, wow, we figured out how to do it. And okay, it's a real thing. How far are we between those two points? Right. Well, it took us at least 50 years to get to the point where we had this little tiny experiment work. (laughs) And so being able to scale it up will take a long time. It's not going to be next year. It might not even be a decade from now. So this is really just the beginning of looking towards a reality of fusion. Whereas before, in the 70s and up until recently, it was something that we physically knew could happen because we can see it happening on the sun. We just couldn't reproduce it. And now we've reproduced it. And now it's managing to figure out how to scale it up. So that could potentially take a very long time. So, I mean, so Enrico Fermi did the first fission experiment in 1942, but nuclear power plants started being a reality, I think, in the late 70s. So that probably gives us at least a hint at how long it might take for us to have something that's really viable as an energy source. I appreciate you talking to me about this, and I'm excited about the possibility of nuclear fusion and what that could mean. I'm not sure that we'll see it in our lifetimes, but, you know, who knows? It could be really great because it could be like this wonderful source of, could we call it green energy or could we just call it different energy? Would it be green energy or not? In a sense, it's green energy, I guess. I guess I kind of think of it as different energy, but it shouldn't have quite the same issue of byproducts and, right, of burning gas or nuclear energy. So yeah, I guess it would be pretty green. Greener. Mm-hmm. Greener. Greener, yes. That was physics and mechanical engineering professor Dr. Susan Ramlow from the University of Akron. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net.